Wonderful. You may be seated. I really appreciate the enthusiasm of your worship this morning. Uh, I always like to challenge you to remember uh, you're not the audience and these are not the performers. We are all the praisers and God is the audience. Never hesitate from expressing yourself. Do not hold back. You're not clapping for Craig and Tammy and Rick and Jeff and uh, they appreciate you, but they don't need that. You're clapping for the message you just sang. <laughs> You're clapping for Jesus when you Amen. worship that way and express that. And listen, sometimes you need to give God a good clap. And uh, He deserves it for sure. All right, you got your journal, let's go. Write your name in it. And uh, let's enjoy together over these weeks our study of First Corinthians. We've called Zero Corinthians. Let me begin with a statement that may shock you, but is absolutely true. The Bible was not written to you, but it has been preserved for you. I think it's very important that I begin this way this morning and get you on a path of reading the Bible in a little bit different way. Uh, To make my point, let me just begin with one of the opening verses, I'll read verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Notice how Paul opens his letter, to the church of God, help me with these next two words, at Corinth. So let me just ask the question in a facetious way, was anyone here a resident of first century Corinth? Obviously not, unless you're 2,000 years old. Was anyone here this morning, led to faith personally by the Apostle Paul. He came to your city, he met with you, and he shared the risen Christ, about how Christ died for your sin and rose for you to be your... Yeah, no, not so much. Wonderfully, somebody shared the gospel with you, but it was not the Apostle Paul himself. He's long since gone to heaven. Did anyone here become a member of the Corinthian church sometime on or around 53 A.D. Not unless you've been a Christian for a very, very long time. Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. And it's also ridiculous to you, for you to think that 1 Corinthians was written to you. It was not written to you. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Living in the first century, somewhere around the 50s, A.D., to address a very particular issue. Now, when I say to you, 1 Corinthians was not written to you, that does not diminish its value for us. I'm going to explain. So I see you getting nervous already this morning, and we're just barely getting started. This book is incredibly valuable to us. There are 16 chapters of wonderful learning uh, that we're going to go through And I want you to remember, as we're reading through these uh, sentences and paragraphs and chapters, as we're reading through 1 Corinthians, I want you to think about it this way. You're actually reading someone else's mail. We have a letter carrier in the room. Hopefully you're not reading everybody's mail, Fred. But when you read 1 Corinthians... You're actually reading someone else's mail because Paul has written a letter to the Corinthian believers in the first century and somehow God has preserved this letter for us because there's value in you reading it. Now the problem is there is great difficulty in deciphering it. Why? Because it's someone else's mail. Uh, we're going to see if we can illustrate that for you. Pastor Dave, come right ahead, and uh, let's send a letter. I wrote this letter. <laughs> Literally. Literally, I, yeah, yeah I, wrote, I wrote this letter. Uh, so we want to kind of simulate what it would have looked like for somebody to send letters in the first century. So I'm going to have Letty, Jared, come up. Um, she's actually going to deliver this letter to Jeremy. Where are you, Jeremy? Uh-oh. Right, right in front. There of you. he is. Okay, there he is. Yeah, so she's going to deliver this letter to Jeremy that I've that I've written. Yeah, careful on the steps, letter carrier. 
Oh, hi, Letty. <laughs> Thank you for this letter. Okay, so I read it. I'm go- I'll, I'll read it here. I'll start. No, no, no wait, wait. No, no. You, sorry, you don't read it. Uh, the letter deliverer, because we've had lots of conversations, yeah. and she knows what I wrote, and she was kind of hanging out with me while we were writing the letter. Um, she's actually going to be the one to, to read it to you. Well, I need to know that I can trust her, so I'm going to read to begin with, and, uh, and we'll see. We'll see. It says, Dear Regime, from your dear friend David, written with the unmatched penmanship of my wife, Rachel, here is Letty G. She is a faithful disciple of Christ, and I commend her to you. I want you to regard her as if she were me, and she will recite this letter in my own voice. So in that case, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Come in Dave's okay. own voice, please. Okay. says, I hope this letter finds you and all the McNuggets well. Can you believe it's already February? Last year was so crazy, so I hope this year will be much better. I still haven't gotten the big bad yet. Praise God. He has protected me and my family and has preserved us through the worst year. I pray he continues to do so. I was so sorry to hear that you got the virus, but I'm delighted to know you're healthy again. I guess you and the McNuggets are now superheroes, sort of like Steve Rogers in the First Avengers or Shasta, International Spy. (laughs) There it is, okay. I wanted to get an update on that opportunity that Omar has in Nicaragua. Do you think the price is good? Do you think one of our members would consider funding this? What do you think we should advise Omar to address to shape his people for Christ? Did you see the post from Ezekiel's turban? I thought he was very stylish. But but will this be an issue for his people? How can we assist him through these potentially turbulent times? Waters. I assume all will be well, but I wanted to keep our eyes on this in case he needs assistance from us. Should we Zoom him soon? I'm not too worried because I know God's love and unity can overcome particular circumstances and I know the spirit will guide. By the way, I love the ZC graphic. I think it grabs the feel of the series really well and of course it does because your designs are always phenomenal. I still remember the Romans one. Masterpiece. Also, you reinvented the wheel beautifully. Inspired work. Anyways, Pastor and I are working on the ZC series right now and I'm hoping to have the first couple messages finished before Saturday. Those are in caps by the way. So you can have time to get to the, sli- the slides done. I can't wait to use the tech room. I have so many ideas about the devotionals and podcasts. I want to discuss them with you when I see you next. I think Erica Jr. and, and Rachel have some devotes for the beginning of the series. Don't leave me on the read this time. I look forward to hearing from you soon. David. Now this is much the way a first century letter would work. In the first century, this is high tech. This is high tech. And in the first century, David, that would have taken a month or more for a lady to get on a ship or a horse or whatever, a cart, and go to the port, carry it across an ocean, get on a horse, carry it into the city, or walk. Yeah. We're talking months. Yeah. And if Jeremy wants to reply, it's going to be a month to get a reply. It's high tech. This is high tech in the first century. We don't expect that you understood that letter because you're reading someone else's mail. How many inside reference? Jeremy, did you understand the letter? Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. Why? Because it's just you picking up the conversation where y'all left it the last time. How many inside references were in that letter? Uh, There were seven inside jokes. There were five cultural references. There were five people mentioned. Um, I think that's, yeah. Does anybody know who Shasta is? Raise your hand if you know. So, a few of you. That's a reference to Susan Harrell. <laughs> but you'd have to be on the inside joke of that to know why. The McNuggets. Your kids. Rachel. Rachel. You're Rachel. That's my wife's name, yeah, phonetically spelled out. Imagine if we got this letter 2,000 years later. Sure. And the church at Cornerstone's trying to figure out who is the international spy Shasta? (laughs) And what does she have to do? Uh, Why are you talking about, we think McDuggets, we saw that in an encyclopedia, that's food. Yeah. And why are you talking about the McNuggets as if they're people? Right. I mean, there's 
15 references in that letter that Letty just read. And Letty had to be taught by David. Now, let me just give you another scenario. Paul wrote the book of Romans Mm -hmm. and sent it with Phoebe, Phoebe a deacon, Mm -hmm. across an ocean and then across land to deliver it to the church in Rome. One of the most complicated theological books in the Bible. Who has to read the letter? Yeah, Phoebe does. Phoebe does. It's the first time they're hearing Jews and Gentiles forged together in the body of Christ. Who's going to explain the letter? Well, Phoebe. Would become the first theologian and proclaimer of the book of Romans. Because she would have been with Paul while they were writing it. And and he would have explained explained to her, they're probably going to ask this. So be prepared to answer this. Okay, now this is the way it works in the New Testament. So this illustrates that David wrote Jeremy a letter. It's not written to you and I. But now we've learned something about y'all's relationship. And if this were a Holy Spirit-inspired writing and preserved for us, there would be a reason that God preserved this so that we could draw from it. Thanks, Dave. That helps a lot. Now you've got to get what's happening here. That's why I said this was not written to you, but it's written for you to make some application, preserved for you by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, let's talk about this whole zero, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and all this, this numbering thing we're dealing with. Why zero? Just because this book in your Bible has the heading 1 Corinthians does not mean that this is the first communication that Paul has had with the Corinthian believers. And that's kind of our assumption. We say, first, oh wow, look, Paul's about to say something big to these people in Corinth. And if you're not careful, what you miss is they just labeled them first and second because it's the first letter to the Corinthians preserved in your Bible. And then the second letter, they are by no means the first and second letter. First Corinthians is actually at least the fourth or fifth interaction between Paul and the believers in Corinth. Let me give you just four or five that we know of to show you why this is not really the first communication that has transpired. We know that Paul came to Corinth near the end of the second missionary journey in the book of Acts, somewhere around 50 A.D. That we know from the book of Acts. He stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half with two wonderful Christians whose names show up all over the Bible, a wonderful husband-wife duo who travel all over the Roman Empire making disciples for Jesus Christ. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are entrepreneurs. They're small business owners and patrons. They underwrite financially much of the ministry and movement of Paul and these local congregations that are being planted as a result of the gospel being shared and people being discipled. Priscilla and Aquila's business is a tent-making business. This is their trade. They're tent makers. Listen, in 50 A.D., this is a big business. The world's full of people who need tents in 50 A.D. This is the REI of their day, Priscilla and Aquila, Incorporated. And uh, it's a good business. And by the way, the Apostle Paul also has a skill, an entrepreneurial skill, a vocational skill, beyond just being a theologian, or a Pharisee, or a disciple. You think of just all in spiritual terms when you think of Paul. But Paul was also a tent maker by trade. One of the things we encourage everybody, you need a good gig. You need a, if you can, start a family business. It, it, be sure whatever happens, you teach your kids skills that apply vocationally in life so they can make some money because we need to buy food while we're making disciples. Amen? we got light bills to pay, and we need fuel in the gas tank to be able to make disciples, so we got to have a gig that produces money so we can turn it into disciple-making. And Paul hung out, lived with Priscilla and Aquila there in Corinth. He shared the gospel in Corinth there a year and a half, led a core group of people to faith in Jesus Christ, and then in that year and a half began to disciple those believers. We also know this, that on Paul's third mission trip, years later, we know this from the book of Acts, on Paul's third mission trip, that was the second, on his third now, he goes and spends three years in Ephesus. He stayed there a long, long time. 
And it was there in Ephesus that Paul received a letter from the Corinthians. And we know this, you'll see it when we go through the book, we know this because Paul references the previous letter. And, it, and he's writing back to address their concerns in that letter. I want you to see the letters being exchanged long before we get to 1 Corinthians. And Paul writes back to address their concerns. And what did they do with Paul's letter, which we do not have? Well, what we learned from 1 Corinthians is they basically refused to follow Paul's direction when he told them what to do. You see the tension building and the relationship deteriorating. They're asking questions, Paul's giving an answer, and they say, oh, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> Anybody ever come to you for advice and you give them advice and they do exactly what you told them not to do? That's kind of what's happening right here. They're they just kind of refusing to follow Paul now. Then we know further that Paul now receives a delegation from Corinth. Some people show up from Corinth, and they're, again, like Letty, carrying a letter and bringing a report to Paul while he's in Ephesus. We know their names. There's three of them, a little trio of people here, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, and you'll see their names next week. They come from Corinth now bearing a report, and it looks like the report is from someone named Chloe, man or woman, man or woman, absolutely. She is obviously either a patron, which means a wealthy somebody who helps facilitate the ministry. By the way, it's never been different. I, I grew up in this modern age, and I, I, I hear pastors and churches get a bad rep. You know, well, y'all are asking for money to do this and that. I wish I could come to church and somebody asked for my money. Well, how, pray tell, do you think we're going to get radio time? How, pray tell, do you think we're going to get somebody on a mission trip without buying a plane ticket? American Airlines doesn't give them away for free. How, pray tell, do you think, I mean, when Omar was here, I'm just giving him books in Spanish, saying, take these, fill a suitcase, take them back, give them to our disciples, I'll be there as soon as I can travel again. How are we going to buy books without money? They need books. All I'm saying is it costs money to do ministry, and don't think... That's a modern thing, and, and pastors are corrupt, and churches are corrupt. It's always been a thing. I mean, Paul and them had to have boat tickets, if you would. Uh, somebody has to buy papyrus and quills, I mean, and, and, and ink. And, and people have to go, and they have to deliver, and they have to, take, they have to take risks. These people who bring the report from Corinth to Paul now, this is like the third interaction at least, Three people bearing a report from Chloe. They are referred to, you'll see next week, as Chloe's people. I want you just to interpret that right now. Chloe's people. Who in the world would Chloe's people be? Could be family. Spiritual family. Her followers. Could it be her friends. Okay, we got an ABC right there real quick. Good job, guys. So we got some options. we got to figure out who Chloe's people are. And there's some very strong implications that Chloe is the wealthy person who hosts the church because the church meets where? In someone's house. Exactly. And so we think Chloe might be, and we'll talk more about this, the woman who hosts the church at Corinth in her home. Now... Chloe's people come with a letter, but wait for it, another letter has come from the church at Corinth, and this letter is different. It's filled with situational issues that they're asking Paul to give an answer. What do we do about this? And you're going to be quite intrigued when we get to this part of the book, because they're asking questions about marriage, about divorce, about sexuality about breaking cultural customs, about women's equality, about dress codes, about dietary issues, about feasts with idols, about spiritual gifts, about personal rights, just to name a few subjects we're about to cover in 1 Corinthians. So now in springtime, it's either 53, 54, or 55 A.D., Somewhere in this tight window between 53 and 55, we know it's springtime, 
Paul now is going to answer the church of Corinth. Not for the first time. For the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, who knows? We don't have the other letters. That's the problem. But now Paul's about to write what you know as 1 Corinthians. So I just want to get in your mind. It's really not the first. We could call it 5 Corinthians or 4 Corinthians. But that's the letter Paul is about to write. And in that letter, he's going to address Chloe's report that he just got. And he's going to answer the letter that they've previously sent about divorce, remarriage, sexuality, and a million other issues they want answers to. Our point is simply this. To arrive at 1 Corinthians and open it in your lap this morning in the year of our Lord, 2021, is to arrive at this conversation about 2,000 years late. That's what I want you to get this morning. You have opened now in your lap literally a letter written 2,000 years ago. And for you to read someone else's mail 2,000 years old in your lap, it's going to be hard to figure out the other side of the conversation, like with Jeremy and David. What are all the inside references? What's the tone? Well, let's see if we can figure out some of this. Here's what you need to know. You've arrived in the middle of the conflict. This is not the opening salvo. We're right in the middle of something that's been going on for years when we open 1 Corinthians. And your challenge in the next few weeks is figuring out what the conversation is all about. You have to reconstruct (coughs) zero Corinthians. Let me say it another way. When you read 1 Corinthians, you have to reconstruct Corinthians the prequel. These Star Wars fans ought to figure this out real quick. There's a story and there's a lot of backstory, okay? And you move forward and you go back and you move... What we're asking you to do for the next few weeks as you read 1 Corinthians is try to reconstruct, well, what must have happened previously? What must have been said or done for Paul to say this right now? Well, one of the things I've noticed about us in the modern Christian world is we'd love to have a list of rules all neatly spelled out where God just says, listen, do these five things and we're going to be good and, and that'll govern your Christian life. One of the things I've noticed is that God has not given us the Bible we want. We'll talk more about this this year. Instead, God gave you the Bible he wanted you to have. Stay with this thinking now. God will not give you the Bible you want. Where it's just A, B, C, do this, okay, good, let's go. Instead, God gave you the Bible he wanted you to have. You're wondering, why didn't God just give us a letter? No, instead he gave you a 2,000-year-old letter, and he wants you to read their mail. And you say, well, it doesn't apply to us. We've got to figure out what the conversation is. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. So here's what God did for you. He gave you the Holy Spirit, and then he gave you a stack of somebody else's mail called the New Testament. And he's like, here, if you'll read their mail, the Holy Spirit's going to help you discern this and figure out what of that needs to be applied and how to apply it to your life. Now, don't minimize the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. You say, that doesn't even sound possible or plausible. Oh, it is. The Holy Spirit of God can take somebody else's mail and turn your world inside out and completely transform your life. So what God did for us is He preserved these writings in the Bible, so you can eavesdrop on what Paul said to the Corinthians in their fourth or fifth exchange, and God knows that his indwelling presence in your life, the Holy Spirit, will just take that conversation that Paul is having with the Corinthians, and he'll make application to your life so that you're transformed 2,000 years later because you read the Word of God called 1 Corinthians. And what we're saying in the introduction today is that to comprehend 1 Corinthians, we'll constantly have to reconstruct zero Corinthians because everything that is being 
discussed today has already been mentioned previously. Letters have been exchanged, questions have been asked, answers have been ignored. We're going to address it again, and we're going to circle back and address it again, and we're going to circle back and address it again. You ever feel like this as a parent? The dirty clothes go in the hamper. The cap goes on the toothpaste. I saw a beautiful commercial where there's a family, and the mom's walking around the house. Maybe you've seen this. And the dad and the kids, she's making them take notes on a pad. And she walks into the bathroom and said, cap on tooth. They're like, oh, my gosh. And they're writing that down, you know. And she's like, watch this. And the dirty clothes are right next to the hamper. Right next to the hamper. Can I get a witness in here? They just didn't make it in the hamper. And she's like, watch this. Boink. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And they're just taking notes. You know, that's what it's like to be a parent, isn't it? And you hope that at some point, maybe about 28, it clicks, you know, and things start happening. It's, now listen, Jeremy covered this a few weeks ago with you. Making disciples is really benefit if you understand parenting. Because making disciples is a lot like this. And being a disciple is a lot like this. I, I can't tell you how many times in my spiritual journey I had to hear the same things over and over because I just wasn't getting it. And then at some point, oh, you're saying the clothes go in the hamper, you know, and and your spiritual leader is like, blah, you know, we just had a breakthrough moment, transformation moment here. Exactly, exactly what's happening. First Corinthians cannot be read as a theological essay. Matter of fact, there are very few books in your Bible that can be read like that. The book of Romans is one. Where in the book of Romans, you can just take a verse out. And one verse, and just put it over here and say, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, that'll preach. And that'll stand alone. You can go into the book of Romans and just grab a verse, almost, and pull it out over here. You know, just say, For all of sin, and come show it. But God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that'll just preach on its own. It'll stand in every demographic, in every generation, in every time period, on every continent, for whosoever shall, it just stands on its own merit. You cannot do that with most of the Bible. You cannot just take a verse out of 1 Corinthians. I, I, and now I say that those who had wives be as if they had none. Imagine Chris just taking that out of the Bible this morning in 1 Corinthians saying, I'm going to stand on that. I have a wife and I'm starting acting like I had none. Well, how do you think his marriage is going to play out here in the next few weeks? They'll be in counseling, divorce court, who knows what, okay? You can't just take a situational verse out of 1 Corinthians and just say, see, I'm going to cobble that together with three or four other verses and I'm going to build a whole belief system on that. Let me keep saying it out loud. 1 Corinthians as an occasional letter. It is written to a specific group of people in a specific time in history to address a specific set of issues in their church. It cannot, 1 Corinthians cannot mean what it has never meant. As you're interpreting it, you can't come to a conclusion that wasn't in the first century. It can never mean now what it did not mean mean then. It cannot mean to us in America in 2021 what it did not mean to them in first century Corinth. So we're using the word zero, obviously, to keep reminding us as we go through first Corinthians that zero is the key. We have to recreate the situation and the conversation. And we may ask several times through the series this question, why did Paul bring that up? Why did Paul bring that up? You see, when Paul, for example, just I'll pull one out. For example, when Paul starts talking about not sleeping with prostitutes. Yikers. Somebody needs to stop and say, why would he bring that up? Well, let me ask you, why would he bring that up? Why would he bring that up? Listen, I've been here 20 years and I've never preached a... 40-minute sermon to you on why you should not sleep with prostitutes. (laughs) And I have not preached that sermon to you, not because it might not have happened, 
But I have not preached that sermon to you because it's not the situation that the congregation is dealing with. I hope. Okay? I hope. I haven't read your mail, but I hope. Okay? So when I say to you, why would Paul bring that up? Well, you already know the answer, don't you? It is their context, and it's exactly what a big group in the church must have been doing. Further, let me say to you that we have to become students of paragraphs again. We have to become students of paragraphs. This is a letter. Letty, you just read a letter. It was in paragraphs. A letter is written in paragraph form. What is a paragraph? Well, let's just go back to 101 here for a minute. Noun. A distinct section in a piece of writing. A paragraph is a distinct section in a piece of writing and that paragraph will deal with a single theme and will be indicated by a new line indentation or numbering system. So the big takeaway here is the Bible was not written in verses. Ding, 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 ding. When Paul wrote this to Corinth, there are no one, two, three, four, five. There are no numbering system with it. It's a letter. And it's all written in letter form, which means sentences that say the same thing are grouped together in things called paragraphs. One of the things that's been very difficult for the contemporary uh, church, it's caused a lot of difficulty in our theology, is that the church developed its belief system on verses, not paragraphs. Now, please hear these things. And y'all know you're hearing many of these things for the first time in your life. When we build a religious belief system on verses, we're going to get in big time trouble. We're going to fall into error. When we build a religious understanding, a belief system on paragraphs, we're going to get closer to the right answer. Taking a verse and just building a belief will get you an erroneous interpretation of what's happening and what God is trying to communicate to you. Sometimes this is called proof texting. We use this word around here a lot. Don't proof text. Don't just take a Bible, a verse and rip it out of the Bible and say, okay, that's the Bible. God said it. We've got to do it. That'll get you the most confused, messed up belief system in the, in the world. Now, our problem has been exacerbated by the old English Bibles that we grew up on, such as the authorized King James Version. The KJV laid out the text for us in verses. It went down the page, my Bibles at least, in two columns. Y'all know what I'm talking about. In two columns, the text went down the page. Verse, 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 verse. You didn't really know where one paragraph started, one paragraph ended. You know, it was a little bit strange in that. But it was all laid out in a verse system. And so the readers focused on the verses but forgot the verses were embedded in a paragraph, and so you don't know which thought goes with which paragraph if this thought has concluded and another thing has begun. What I'm saying to you this morning is, going forward, we need to learn to read our Bible in the way it was written. We'll get a better interpretation if we do. And it was not written in verse form, it was written in paragraph form. Each paragraph... Each sentence in the paragraph builds that idea because a paragraph basically has one idea. So what we want to retrain our people to do at Cornerstone is we want to retrain you to read the Bible in paragraph form. And as you're reading a paragraph, and you can take notes in your journal right out beside the paragraph, the big idea of the paragraph. See if you can take four or five sentences three or four sentences, and over there beside them say, the big idea, this paragraph's talking about X, Y, Z, you know what I'm saying? And just in a sentence, say what the paragraph is discussing. Now, in your journals this morning, and the verses we'll be putting up are in CSB, it's a, it's a more modern version, Christian Standard uh, Bible. The CSB is laid out in paragraph form, which is why we chose this journal. The NIV also lays out the Bible in paragraph form. It's going to facilitate you being able to see, here's how Paul would have written this. 
see the nice paragraphs going down the page. Let's figure out what the paragraphs are about. Let's talk about the history of Corinth for a moment. The history of Corinth is easily divided into two parts. Corinth in the Greek Golden Age and Corinth in the Roman Empire, which is where we're reading right now. Corinth in the Greek Golden Era, that's 500 B.C. 500 B.C. runs into the 300s B.C. Uh, in the time of someone you would know, Alexander the Great. Golden Era of Greece. And uh, 500 to 300, Alexander's empire rules the world. Four generals inherit it. When he dies, empire divides apart. And here comes the Roman Empire. So, Corinth's history, Greek golden era, 500, 400, 300, 200 B.C. Here comes the Roman Empire. And Corinth made the mistake of standing against Rome. Does anybody sense what's about to happen? She's going to get squashed like a bug, Alan Smith says. And you're exactly right. She rebelled against Rome, and Rome squashed her like a bug. Leveled Corinth to the... Blew it up like an explosion. And Corinth lay in ruins, 146 B.C. It was destroyed. And Corinth lay in ruins for 100 years. It was not a city. Was a city? Not a city. And it was not a city for a hundred... That's a long time for a city not to be a city. Just ruins. Nothing. Just blew it up. Destroyed it. Raised it. Burned it. Leveled it. That's what you get when you stand against Rome in the day of Rome. So a hundred years it lay dormant. No city there. And then those Romans just kept going. Boy, they kept conquering the world and getting powerful and powerful, more powerful. And finally, a Roman came to power who looked at Corinth and said, Holy mackerel, this is a strategic spot. This is an ideal spot for a colony of Rome. And Corinth was rebuilt by none other than Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. and became one of Rome's most strategic colonies. Let me tell you why. Corinth boomed after Caesar rebuilt it. Because Corinth had everything that a city of its day needed for economic growth. It had natural defenses. There's a big mountain in Corinth called the Acro-Corinth. Big, rocky mountain stronghold, which is important for defense. Corinth had plentiful freshwater springs. Corinth, most importantly, in this era, had the protection of Rome because now she is a Roman colony. Economy is booming because Corinth controls two harbors, not one, two, and a piece of land between them that you can move cargo over land. It can come from the east, we can offload it, we can cart it over land a little bit, drop it in our other harbor, and push it on to the western world over to Italy, Spain, and beyond. Corinth also was booming because Corinth had the second most important athletic games of the day, <laughs> the Isthmian Games. Now, I know it doesn't mean anything to you. You know about the Olympics, but there was another set of games that were just about as important as the Olympics in the Greco-Roman world called the Isthmian Games. That's like having the World Cup in your city. That's like what Tampa's about to enjoy this afternoon. Do you think some money's flowing into Tampa today? All weekend, all week? Mil hundreds of millions, maybe billions, I don't know, is flowing into Tampa because they're hosting the Super Bowl today. That's what Corinth was. It was the home of the Isthmian Games. Additionally, the demographics of Corinth were Roman dominant. Because now it's a Roman colony. You know that Romans, when they built colonies, they repopulated these places with Roman freedmen. When Rome would go and conquer Europe, for example, with the legions of Rome, let's say Rome conquers Spain, Rome conquers France, Rome conquers Germania, as they conquer those people, they look at those men and say, now you can come fight on our side and we'll give you three squares a day, some coin in your pocket, and ultimately we'll make you Roman free citizens, but you're going to have to come and fight and do your time, and when we discharge you, then you can go farm a colony or whatever. Well, you have the choice, either be that or die. So what do you think they chose? 
Yeah, and some of the most powerful legions were made up of Spaniards and the people that Rome began to conquer. But when those people had served their time, they could be free. They were Roman freedmen. Well, obviously, Rome doesn't want all of those non-Italians coming to live in the city of Rome. They might just take it over. So Rome would say to Roman freedmen, people who had earned their freedom, Rome would say to them, you go and settle one of our colonies and you can be very Roman there. So when the Roman freedmen came to Corinth, they brought with them Roman culture. They brought with them Roman laws. They brought with them to Corinth Roman gods. Now, Corinth is on the Greek peninsula. This is Greece. So now we're going to mix Rome with the Greek culture because now Greeks are moving in again to repopulate their own city of Corinth. The Greek culture in this day was called Hellenism. And Hellenism maintained its ties to Greek religion, Greek gods, Greek philosophy. This is where all the philosophers, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they're bringing all of that Greek philosophy and Greek gods and Greek arts into Corinth. Then from the east now, we have immigrants coming from Egypt and the other countries bringing in the mystery cults of Egypt and Asia. And then we have a fourth group coming in now. We have Jews coming from the Middle East, building synagogues in Corinth and bringing their very peculiar belief in only one God. And all of that is put into the mixer now. It's all going into the blender and you're having some idea of what Corinth begins to look like. Since Corinth was among the most busy, bustling seaports of the ancient world, it has what every sailor-rich town has. Lots of vice. In Corinth, immorality and religion lived side by side. And Corinth gained a reputation for unrivaled sexual vice. So much so that the historian... Aristophanes coined a word that you can still find in many English dictionaries, and the word is Corinthianize. To Corinthianize someone means that you have converted them to complete and open sexuality. Anything goes. The great theologian Gordon Fee summed it up this way. All the evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once... The New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. The challenge of diversity. Paul speaks to the diversity of the church. Let me just pull one verse out of chapter 12 and read for you verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Watch the diversity now. Whether Jews or Greeks or slaves... Or free. So we know that the Corinthian church now is made up of Jews and Greeks and slaves and Roman freedmen. And each of these four groups have brought into the church their own unique baggage, just like you have. How are you raised, Alan? What religion? You bring that baggage to us this morning. What religion were you, tradition were you raised in? Roman Catholic. You bring that baggage into us this morning. Anybody raised Methodist? Right here. Bring that baggage with you. I'm not saying that in a negative. We just bring it. Anybody raised Lutheran? Presbyterian? Satanist? I'm not sure what all we have here this morning. Whatever your tradition was you grew up in, that's what you grew up in. And wherever you, you just bring that baggage right on. I grew up independent Baptist. I've got more baggage than all of you. Yeah. And you bring that baggage right on in. What baggage they brought. The Jews brought into the church at Corinth their baggage of two laws. And they couldn't discern between the two. They're so confused. They have the law of Moses and they have the oral Mishnah law. The man-made law that Jesus was so critical of in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when he said you make so many rules that nobody can do it. He's not talking about Moses. He's talking about the law they made called the oral Mishnah. 
They bring that into the church now. You see, the Greeks, they bring into the church their idolatry and their Platonic philosophy. So the Greeks in the church, their Platonism that has influenced their life says we can do in our body whatever we want to do. It doesn't matter because the body's going into the ground and we're going to heaven and it's that part of us is pure even if the body does whatever the body wants to do. So we just let the body do whatever the body wants to do. That's Platonism and they brought that baggage right into the church. Can you imagine those people teaching your children in the youth department? Just let your body do whatever it wants to do. You may see that that could lead to maybe some problems. Okay, just seeing if y'all are still with me. The slaves bring into the church a lifetime of abuse. Can you imagine being slowed into slavery as a child? Many of the slaves of the first century must have had incredible feelings of inferiority. They had been abused in every way possible. Hear my words. They've been abused in every way you can abuse someone. Many of these slaves have been forced into prostitution. Bring that right into the church too. The Roman freedmen, they bring into the church the Rome first policy. Rome first. So hard right wingers. Rome first policy, loyalty to Rome. The church better not say anything against Rome. We've got something similar like that working right now. Don't say anything negative, don't be critical, and they worshiped Caesar as a god. <clears throat> they bring that baggage into the church. Some of the people in the church were from the lowest socioeconomic classes, and only a few in the congregation were from the wealthy classes, as I indicated. All right, Chloe may be one of those. Many were former idolaters. Most were former idolaters, except for the Jews in the room. The pervading condition of the church members were that they were all deeply Corinthian. I don't say that as a good thing. They were all deeply Corinthian. The tone of the book. The tone of the book, you need to understand, is not maybe what you thought it was. The tone of 1 Corinthians is a mixture of combative sarcasm... We'll try to point out several times in the book as we're reading where Paul's being sarcastic. Have you ever been sarcastic with your kids? I'm sure you haven't. Now that I said it, you'll catch yourself later today. No, I don't want you to take out the trash. I just want it to fall over in the floor for the next three days. That's sarcasm, okay? No, I don't want you to pick up your laundry. Listen, the laundry fairy will come and get that later. Sarcasm. I want you to know that Paul is using an incredible amount of combative sarcasm, confrontation. The tone is corrective. The tone is challenging. Yet the tone is loving and caring because these are his spiritual children. And you say, well, Pastor, you keep alluding to parenting because this is a lot like parenting. Sarcasm is prevalent. (laughs) Right now you're thinking, you're poor boys. Uh, Yeah, probably. The language of Paul's ad hoc response you'll find to be rhetorical and contentious. If you think Paul's going to snuggle them up and say, oh, binky baby, it's going to be okay, that is not what you're about to read. Paul's tone is contentious and rhetorical. And you're about to bear witness in these chapters, the Apostle Paul confronting these spiritual disciples on every turn of the page. Paul is combating their beliefs, he's combating their behavior, and he is challenging them with all the weapons in his extensive linguistic arsenal. Now I want you, before you get upset with Paul, to walk in Paul's sandals just for a minute. How do you reassert your authority over your children once you have been publicly demeaned and personally attacked by them. Walk in his sandals. And how do you correct like a parent 
when you've spent so much time, four or five already major exchanges, how do you correct like a parent when you've spent so much time stressing the importance of servant leadership? Doesn't being a corrective parent now undermine everything you just saw? How do you balance the two? Paul must convince them to change their theology and change their behavior and conform to his because they are moving towards positions that threaten the church and threaten the gospel itself. So how do you balance a massive correction, a massive confrontation with love? It's challenging, isn't it? Walk in Paul's shoes a moment and you'll feel the tension that he feels. What we discover in 1 Corinthians is a conflict, church in conflict with its original founder. This is a church dealing with substantial internal strife. And Paul sees what's happening and realizes the outcome, the internal division that they're going through and their strife with him. He sees it as a crisis over his authority and ultimately a crisis against the gospel. So what's driving this conflict? How have things gone so wrong? The key issue in the conflict has to do with the Corinthian understanding of what does it mean to be spiritual people. This is the question that this book was written to answer. The big underlying issue in this book is how you answer this question. The conflict... The Corinthians are answering this question in a different way than the Apostle Paul is answering this question. You see, this is why we have so many denominations in America today. Because different groups of people answer this question in a different way. This is why those of you who are new here and you're, you're maybe visiting with us and you're, or you're new and you're just trying to get acclimated here as a, as a new member, this is why coming to a new church can be so difficult. Because the new church may answer this question differently than your previous church experience. The big thing I want to stress to you as we go through this book is find your own voice on this question. And hopefully at the end of this study we all have the same answer to this question. How do you read the Bible? What does it mean to be spiritual people? The Corinthians have come to a different answer than Paul. The church is clearly in conflict with its founder on how to answer the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? And now there is a conflict between them and apostolic teaching. And I just want to warn you, to be in conflict with Paul and Peter and James and John is really to be in conflict with Jesus Christ because they were his direct disciples. They got their theology right from the man himself. And so when you say, well, I don't agree with Peter, uh, so you don't agree with Jesus, probably. If you don't agree with Paul on how to be saved from the book of Romans, you probably don't agree with God on how to get to heaven. I'm just saying, it's all broad brushstrokes here. Now the Corinthians are not answering the questions, and now they're, like Paul, they're in conflict with him, and they don't agree with him. Paul's ultimate goal in writing this letter is to reestablish their focus back on the gospel so they see their lives through the lenses of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians are essentially spiritual babies who think they're the parents. Have y'all ever witnessed that biologically? When you have a child, you know, going on 10 who thinks they're 23? It's, It's not attractive. And you can see some problems happening here. The Corinthians have not assessed themselves correctly. Let me read a verse for you. Watch Paul assess him. We'll get to it in a couple of weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Help me with these next few words. As babies in Christ. Paul said, you're my disciples. I've already assessed you. You're infants. But you think you're parents. And you want the keys to the car. 
you're going to wrap it around a tree. You're you're writing your own theological opinions over here. You're just spiritual infants. So here's my question to you. How in the world, by what measurement, did the Corinthians assess themselves to be spiritually mature? When the Apostle Paul trained, let's say by Jesus, he's one later, but we'll say that. How do you have an apostle in conflict with a group of people? The apostle says you're an infant, and they say, no, we're parents, we're spiritually mature. By what standard did they measure themselves to be spiritually mature? The answer may surprise you. They assessed themselves to be spiritually mature people because they spoke in tongues. We'll get to it. Somehow the Corinthians came to believe that speaking in tongues was the ultimate evidence, the ultimate answer to the question, what does it mean to be spiritual people? Their answer, we speak with the tongues of angels. They believed it to be an angelic language. The other way they measured themselves to be spiritually mature is they determined that their spiritual maturity was based on their open-mindedness. This is a very applicable message to America. They thought, see, we are parents. He said, you're babies. They said, oh, no, we're very grown up. Don't you see our open-mindedness? Now, you may be wondering, open-minded on what issues? Well, the Corinthian church of Jesus Christ believed that they could participate in worship in the idol temple without being led astray. They were very open-minded. Come to church on Sunday, go to the temple of Bacchus on Tuesday, it's all good. They were so open-minded, they believed they could withhold sexual relations from their spouse with no implications. You say, that's weird. Well, on the other side of that coin, they also believed they could have sex with whoever they wanted to without it affecting their spiritual life. See how open-minded we are? We must be very, very mature. They believed they could morph the communion meal into anything they wanted it to be, make it mean anything they wanted it to say. They were so mature in their own minds, they didn't worry about what other weaker brethren felt, think, or interpreted from their actions. They just believed they could do as they please. See how open-minded we are? That must mean that we're very spiritually mature. They saw themselves as having gone far beyond Paul's teaching and practice. You see, Paul, that guy who founded our church, he's way too strict. I don't know what's wrong with that guy. He's really uptight. Now, they see Paul as very orthodox. And they see their new pastor, probably Apollos, as allowing the culture to inform their own version of Christianity. You see, Paul speaks to us like children. We don't like to be talked to like children. We're not children. You see, uh, our new leaders speak to us as if we are adults. Paul speaks to us with so much sarcasm and rebuke. How dare he talk to us like that? Who is he to tell us how to be spiritual people? After the way he treats us, we don't even think Paul is a spiritual person himself. When you get to 1 Corinthians, ladies and gentlemen, you've come in the middle of the argument. You understand what's happening now? You've stepped right into the middle of a squabble that's been running for years. The Corinthian church doesn't even think Paul is an enlightened one like the rest of them now. So in 0 Corinthians, we're going to have to recreate the Corinthian understanding of tongues and all of these other issues. Things eventually deteriorate. So that Paul finally has to make a surprise visit in 2 Corinthians. And when Paul shows up in 2 Corinthians, imagine Paul standing in front of the church and saying, You know, when I left here a few years ago, there were 50 of you. And now I come back, all these years later, 49, 50. There are still 50 of you. Where is your fruit? That's coming. And it's coming 
between you and Jesus as well. You, you see, the Apostle Paul and Jesus both believe that the high watermark of following Christ is bearing fruit. Let me just read you a verse. Jesus talking. If you have a red letter edition, it'll be in red in your Bible. John 15, 8, Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you, you, your name here, that you, Chris, bear much fruit, and you will prove to be his disciple. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And you can ask whatever you want in the Father's name. It'll come to you. For Paul, the truth of the gospel is that it has the power to transform us so that the Holy Spirit can speak into our lives about the real matters of everyday life and even, yes, we're about to discover the most sensitive issues. One of the theologians we were reading said, even the most ticklish matters, the Holy Spirit can speak to us. Let me conclude with this. The tension now, as we go to chapter 1 next week, is whether Paul can perform surgery. Radical surgery. And not kill the patients. You see, they are believers in desperate need of becoming mature, fruit-bearing disciples of Christ. These are believers in infancy, they're babies, and they need to experience some radical transformation. And while this letter was not written to you, I hope you're beginning to see how you're going to benefit from studying it together here on Sundays. Because we've also been assessing ourselves spiritually during the month of January. We've talked a lot about this. And here in this place, you're in a very safe environment for transparency. Let's be honest with God and let's be honest with ourselves this morning don't we all have need of some radical spiritual transformation also couldn't you use a little more transformation in your own life is what I'm saying haven't I mean you're in a safe place okay and I'm saying we I'm saying I, I'm saying us haven't we all regressed in our spiritual habits during this past year? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Let's commit to God that we'll open our lives, we'll open ourselves to the instruction of the Holy Spirit, and we will truly be His spiritual people. Okay, the introduction was always the hardest, and you're through. Now you've got a good foundation for what you're about to discover together. I'm going to give you some homework. I know, I know. It'll be good for you. I'm going to ask you to, to, to do something this week. You guys up in the booth, can you put this up for me here on the side screens? I'm going to ask you to choose one of these three things, okay? Some of you have no time. Some of you have a little time. Some of you have some time. So just depending on where you're at, I'm going to ask you to read Acts 18 plus the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians this week. That's a pretty easy lift. That's three chapters. You've got seven days to read three chapters. Acts 18 gives you the backstory of 1 Corinthians as well. If you're, you know, an A student, well, in this case, a B student, I'm going to ask you to do A plus read the first two chapters every day this week and make some notes in your journal. So read Acts 18, and every day this week as your devotion time, read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Just take you a few minutes, honestly. And then as you're reading... The next seven days, you may have a question, or you, something may, Holy Spirit may speak something. Just write it there in your journal as you're doing, or see if you've got, you know, you're like a gifted and talented student here this morning. We're going to ask you to complete B plus memorize 1 Corinthians 1 18. 1 Corinthians 1 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Let's hide that in our hearts. Let's stand together. You're ready to go face a wonderful week walking in the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. Jeremy, come and close us in a worship song.
Father, we bow before you this morning. Lord, our minds are on information overload right now. We've come now into the town of Corinth and we've begun to understand who they are, what the conflict is, and why Paul's writing to them. And God, and even in that introduction, you've begun to stir our hearts through your Holy Spirit about some ticklish matters in our own life that are going to be addressed. And Father, while we see these babies needed to grow up, Father, I also look in the mirror and see how I need to continue to be transformed. Maybe many here this morning are being stirred by your spirit, God, about spiritual growth. Lord, we want to be spiritual people. We want to be people of the spirit. We want you to teach us the answer to that question, what does it mean to be spiritual people? Father, stir our hearts this week as we go to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.